Please pray with me. O Lord, take my mind and think through it. Take my eyes and see through them. Take my mouth and speak through it. And take all our hearts and set them on fire with a passion for your gospel. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Grace and peace to you from the Diocese of Newark in the Garden State of North Jersey. Exit 13 off the New Jersey Turnpike and exit 11 off the Garden State Parkway, where we had our first snow last week. This mild Georgia weather is a bit of a shock to my system. And as is seeing so many of you in church, I mean, y'all know it's Thursday night, right? I mean, this just wouldn't happen in New Jersey of a Thursday night. But, you know, between the weather and the southern hospitality, I may just not be able to go home tomorrow. When Bruce Gardner, my good friend and brother in Christ, asked me to preach for you today, he explained that gay pride is held in October in Atlanta because you really can't march in the heat in June, which is typically gay pride month in the north. He was telling me about the march and how you will take over the local park, and and he said something, he sort of mumbled it as an aside, that tickled my ears, caught me up short, and made me giggle. He said, well, there will be thousands of people there, but afterward we'll clean it all up and, here it comes, and leave it better than it was when we found it. I confess I didn't hear too much after that because I chuckled to myself and I thought, leave it better than it was when we found it. Gosh, that's so gay. (laughs) I know, I know. We're, We're not used to hearing that in a positive way, are we? That so gay has become the last socially acceptable minority slur. All the cool kids say it. Indeed, GLSEN has a series of fabulous ad spots to raise awareness about how uncool it is to say, that's so gay. Have you seen them? My favorite one is the one featuring Miss Wanda Ama Be Me Sykes when she says, knock it off. You know she ain't messing around. (laughs) But, But you know what? I want to take it back. I want to take that's so gay back from the lips of adolescent at any age bigots and turn it into a positive. Because, you know, it is. It is a very positive thing to be so gay. Thank you. So let me start with St. James. It's his feast day tomorrow, and all the lessons appointed for this evening give us a little window into the man. We aren't really sure of his lineage. Some church historians dispute whether he is the brother or half-brother or cousin of Jesus. But we sure can be glad that the birthers haven't started searching for his real birth certificate. (laughs) Although I expect it any day now. (laughs) History does name James as the first bishop of Jerusalem. And the passage from the book of Acts, which was read tonight, 
records one of the first major decisions of his episcopacy. There was a great controversy among the early Christians. I know, imagine, controversy in Christian community. How could that be? And guess what the controversy was about? You'll never imagine, not in a million years. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> the controversy was about who could be a real Christian. I know, right? Glad they got that settled way back then, so we don't have to return to that argument today. Some were saying that only Jews could become Christians, certainly not Gentiles. I mean, not only did Gentiles not keep strict dietary laws, but they weren't even circumcised, and everybody knew that there's no salvation outside of circumcision. I mean, you may go to church and give honor and glory to God and then perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus and be led by the Spirit to bring more souls to God through the power of the resurrection. But if you had an extra piece of skin on a certain part of your body, well, everything was null and void. In those days, the only response an uncircumcised male got was the ancient version of, version of <laughs> that's so gay. <laughs> So Paul and Barnabas were sent out on a mission trip to Phoenicia and Samaria, of all places. And when they came back to Jerusalem, they told all the brethren, and probably a few cistern, who were no doubt chuckling up their sleeves about this whole circumcision controversy, about the conversion of the Gentiles, and all about what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, when they heard this, there was great joy among the brethren. But some who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, today they call themselves the Orthodox, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to change them to keep the law of Moses. Well, James, being a good bishop, listened very carefully to both sides of the story especially when Peter got up and said that God knows the human heart and makes no distinction based on external matters. Indeed, said Peter to his brethren, we believe that we shall be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. After a silence fell on the crowd, Bishop James stood up and declared, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And that, as they say, was that. It's been a long time since we've had bishops like James, able to make a decisive, albeit unpopular, decision like that for the inclusion of all God's children. That's probably because every bishop since then knows how it ended for Bishop James. <laughs> For his troubles, he got thrown off the top of the temple and, and was cudgeled to death. Haven't heard of too many bishops being cudgeled to death since then, right? Well, that's because not too many bishops make that kind of decisive decision. Present company excluded, of course, your, your, your grace. The bottom line is the Gentiles were in. They were accepted into the, into the early Christian community just as they were without one plea and with everything intact, in thank you very much. 
Now that's so gay. Hear me clearly, I am not preaching that James was gay. I don't know about that, and frankly, I don't care, and I don't think God does either. I'm saying that what he did was so gay, in the best possible meaning of that phrase. Let me explain. Eleven years after the brutal murder of Matthew Shepard, I've been reflecting on issues of repentance and forgiveness, confession and restitution, and a little thing called metanoia, which I'll explain in just a few minutes. I'm coming to believe that the death of Matthew Shepard is one of three major acts of sin, three ways in which the LGBT community have been the objects of hate and evil, three seminal events in our community which have broken open the prevailing cultural norm so that we may find healing from the sin and psychosis of the social disease known as homophobia. Like any movement, there are small but nonetheless significant fires that sparked the movement. One was lit in November 1950, when Robert Hull, Charles Denison Rowland, Dale Jennings, Rudy Grenrich, and Harry Hay formed the Mattachine Society, which was successful in securing a deadlocked jury and dismissal of the case against Dale Jennings for lewd and dissolute conduct. Now, that may not seem like a significant victory, but it was the first of its kind. Remember, it was 1950. And it was the first to break the public silence about homosexuality. It was on the front page news. It did not launch a movement, per se. That would come later. But it did help to launch the lesbian organization Daughters of Belitis, founded by Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon in San Francisco in 1955. Both organizations had, had national newsletters or magazines. The Mattachine Society had one, and the DOB had the latter. And we now had a voice. Separate and not exactly equal, it was the 50s, but we, we had a voice. We were talking to each other in our own limited circles of gender, but at least we were talking. In my mind and in my lifetime, there have been three major events which happened in, the, in our community, but there are other, unfortunately, many, many other similar acts of sin and evil and psychosis which add fuel to the hellfire of homophobia. This is just my perspective. You may have another. I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong. I'm not saying I've covered it all. This is a sermon, not a book or exhaustive history. I'm just saying how it looks from where I sit, 33 years after my own coming out. These are the three turning points, the three moments of metanoia of the LGBT movement. The first, of course, was the Stonewall Riot in June of 1969. The Stonewall Bar was raided by the New York City Police Department because, well, because that's what cops did back then. And in some parts of the country and in the world, even now, Nigeria and Uganda have been in the news for this very reason. But back then, such such a, uh, a riots like this or such raids like this were done routinely. 
just for fun, I suppose. Round up the faggots and the dykes and the drag queens, load them up in the paddy wagon, make a very big show. Assure the citizenry that all is well. No vice or weirdness in this community. No siree bob. Except this time, the drag queens stomped their pointy stiletto heels, held onto their fabulous wigs, allowed their mascara to smudge, and refused to be harassed. Gay historians report this as the turning point, the metanoia, which gave birth to the gay rights movement. This is the reason we march this weekend. The second event came in a far less dramatic way. On June 1st, 1981, buried in a single paragraph on page five, the MMWR, Mor Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, reported the incidence of what was later called Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, AIDS, in the United States. 1981. These were the Reagan years. We didn't say words like homosexual publicly, rarely in political circles and never in polite company, even if you were homosexual. Don't want to scare the horses. We would soon discover that our invisibility and our silence were complicit with an administration that chose to ignore what was originally known as GRID, gay-related infectious disease. I mean, if the disease was gay-related, why bother? And so no one did. No one in the government, that is. And so GRID became AIDS. And AIDS became AFRAIDS, a fear of AIDS. And the stage was set for AIDS to become an epidemic and eventually a pandemic. And children, this is how the AIDS epidemic has become a worldwide pandemic. The LGBT community learned some very important lessons, difficult lessons. Ignorance equals fear. Silence equals death. And so we, like the Mattachine Society, the Daughters of Belitis, and the Stonewall drag queens before us, learned to find our voice. This time, however, we weren't just talking to each other or back at the NYPD. We learned to, to say, just say no to government apathy and institutionalized homophobia. We learned to act up and organize protest marches, die-ins in front of the White House and state houses and governor's mansions all around the country. It was street theater at its best and most effective. We learned how to work with scientists and to fast track the research on certain potentially life-saving drugs. We actually changed the traditional scientific method in the research process to suspend the two-track placebo versus actual drug study on potentially life-saving drugs in the midst of an epidemic. Our community did that. And we voted and we vowed that we would no longer die silent, private, convenient, polite deaths, actual or societal or spiritual. 
if the Stonewall riots launched a political movement, AIDS helped us to find our voice and our minds and our spirits and our souls. We began to understand something about community and collaboration, which some of us had learned from our work in the civil rights movement. We understood the value of each one teach one. We began to organize our communities, collaborating with other justice communities and organizations to bring about change, life-giving, mind-altering change. We had experienced our second metanoia. We made great strides in the next decade, realizing that Audre Lorde was right, that our silence would not, could not protect us. More and more of us came out publicly in the late 80s and early 90s. And for many of us, that was at great personal cost. I know my dues are marked paid. We came to believe, however, that personal sacrifice was worth the cost, leading not only to our personal benefit, but that of the entire community, gay and straight. And then, and then there was Matthew, Matthew Shepard a young gay man, a college student, an Episcopalian, for God's sake, battered and beaten to death by two young men who had sunk to the psychotic, deep, dark depths of homophobia. His senseless, brutal death was a serious wake-up call to our community, to this nation, and to the world. The death of Matthew Shepard galvanized and mobilized the gay rights movement, which led us a few months short of one year, one year after Matthew's death, to witness the equivalent of the tearing down of the Berlin Wall, the Lavender Wall for we LGBT people, brick by bloody brick, inch by bloody inch. In 1999, California became the first state to adopt a statewide domestic partnership ordinance, which established a statewide domestic registry available to same-sex couples. Not exactly out of the woods of homophobia, but onto the path of marriage equality, and we will overturn Proposition 8. In the year 2000, Vermont became the first state in the country to legally recognize civil unions between gay or lesbian couples. The law states that these couples would be entitled to the same benefits, privileges, and responsibilities as spouses. It stops short of referring to same-sex unions as marriage, which the state defines as heterosexual. But that, too, is changing. B. Jean Robinson, once called the most dangerous man in the Anglican Communion, was elected Bishop of New Hampshire on June 7, 2003, five years after Matthew Shepard's death. In November of 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled that barring gays and lesbians from marrying violates the state constitution. 
The Massachusetts Chief Justice concluded that to deny the protections, benefits, and obligations conferred by civil marriage to gay couples was unconstitutional because it denied the dignity and the equality of all individuals and made them second-class citizens. Strong opposition followed the ruling, but we've won the day in Massachusetts. On June 26, 2003, the Supreme Court ruled on two cases, 17 years apart, that all sodomy laws are unconstitutional. All sodomy laws everywhere in this country were struck down five years after Matthew Shepard's death. At that time, Supreme Court Justice Kennedy wrote in the, in the majority opinion, times can blind us to certain truths, and later generations can see that laws once thought necessary and proper, in fact, serve to oppress. As the Constitution endures, persons in every generation can invoke its principles in their own search for greater freedom. I would add that this is true about church law as well. I am convinced that these three events, Stonewall, AIDS, and Matthew, are not unconnected. I have come to know them as three major events of psychological and spiritual metanoia in our community. In theological terms, the Greek word metanoia is often translated repent, to turn around, to change a thought or action, to correct a wrong and gain forgiveness from the person who is wronged. But Carl Jung, the preeminent psychologist, used the term metanoia in a different way. In Jungian psychology, metanoia denotes, denotes a process of reforming the psyche as a form of healing, a proposed explanation for the, not, for the phenomenon of psychotic breakdown. I think we, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community, the Episcopal Church, and our culture are in a moment of metanoia. We are reforming our individual, communal, and corporate psyches as a form of self-healing. We are refusing to participate in our own or anyone else's oppression. We are taking back the language which has been used to shame and scapegoat and blame us for society's ills. We are emerging from the cultural and religious psychosis of homophobia and becoming more and more authentic as individuals and as a community. If the church is in turmoil about this, I want to claim it and name it as a process of institutional coming out. We are coming out as an institution. Coming out is that initially disorienting, truth-telling, family-disturbing, identity-claiming process that leads into the woods of terror and shame and out into the open meadows of the full acceptance of who we are and whose we are, just as we are, without one plea. There is a reason when we get to the other side of the process 
that we call that gay pride and celebrate it. That we turn heartbreaking pain and debilitating shame into a moment of joy and celebration. That's so gay. We as a community and a church are living into that great prayer we pray at the great vigil of Easter as well as services of ordination. That things that had been cast down are being raised up. That the old is being made new and that all things are being brought to their perfection through Christ Jesus. Being saved and transformed by the grace of God is so Christian and it's so gay. It's so gay to be like Morty Manford, one of the stone, Stonewall drag queens, to stand up for yourself and, and claim the right to bear arms or legs and wear makeup, wig, and stilettos because you know that God isn't concerned with external things. Rather, God knows the human heart and loves us just the way we are. It's so gay to be like Dale Jennings, who took on the homophobia of the court system and secured for us the first victory over oppressive, unjust laws. It's so gay to be like Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, who broke through the double barriers of homophobia and sexism in the gay community and the larger culture to establish safe harbors of community and education and hope against a violent, misogynist culture. It's so gay to be like Louis Crew, Gene Robinson, Michael Hopkins, Tracy Lynn, Susan Russell, Mary Glasspool, and a whole host of other lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender leaders, and straight allies like Ed Bacon, Sam Candler, and bishops like John Bruno, Jack Spong, Walter Ryder, Tom Ely, Mark Beckwith and Steve Lane, who are willing to put the truth of their lives, their careers, on the line for their sisters and brothers of God's amazing rainbow tribe. Yes, let's take back the words that are meant to hurt and silence and shame us and turn them into vehicles of healing and love and pride. Let's take back the dark night of the soul that we've been through in the AIDS crisis and the brutality of hate crimes and walk boldly forward into the light of day on the main streets and park avenues and peach tree lanes all over this country. Let us resolve to be part of the church militant here on earth and leave it a better place than when we found it. Because, well, that's just so gay. Amen. <laughs>